Well, good morning and welcome. If you have your copy of God's Word, if you will turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And we're going to continue our Urban Legend series this morning on our last of the Urban Legends that we will cover, at least at this point. This is by no means an exhaustive list. There are plenty of myths out there that people who uh, normally uh, have pretty good handle or understanding on uh, Christianity or on theology or on Scripture uh, sometimes we just get off course. We hear something long enough and we begin to buy into it, even though it may not have its foundation or uh, its uh, framework in Scripture. And so uh, today we're going to conclude our series, our Urban Legend series, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll look at the first seven verses of this one. And this particular myth has been popularized by a very famous Disney character by the name of Jiminy Cricket. And of course, that is this wonderful saying that we should let our conscience be our guide. You, specifically, should let your conscience be your guide. As a pastor, uh, I do a decent amount of uh, counseling with people, uh, and really, uh, to be honest with you, probably more counseling than I'm actually qualified to do. Some, some of the things that people come in to talk with me about, they really need something a little more in-depth. And so uh, I, I enjoy helping people to the best of my abilities and to be able to use Scripture. And, and so usually what happens, how it generally goes with counseling, is people will call me to set up a time uh, for counseling session. They're many times facing all different manners of difficulty, whether it's in their marriages or just their own, their own uh, heart or financial or whatever the case may be. They'll, they'll come in and uh, I listen. And then I may ask him a few questions, and then I listen some more. And after a while, uh, I, when I begin to feel like I have a, at least a general understanding of their situation, I'll try to offer some biblical advice. I'll try to offer some, uh, some perspective from Scripture and uh, from, uh, from someone who is at least attempting to view things through the lens of Scripture and by the inspiration of and uh, uh, encouragement of the Holy Spirit. And um, then hopefully we're able to help them kind of walk through some of those things, maybe through some of the advice and maybe holding them accountable and walking through some difficult situations like that. And then sometimes I just don't have the answers. Like I, I'm not sure how to answer the questions. And when that happens, many times we just pray and cry together because we, we do live in a fallen, sinful, broken world and there's not always a recipe uh, for uh, whipping up the perfect life. There's not always uh, a prescription for how to just get rid of the problems that you face. And for the most part, it at least helps people. It helps to comfort them. And, and sometimes uh, when they need more significant counseling from a trained professional, we kind of help them find that. And somebody who can Go a little bit extra and in-depth with them to help them through that. But, you know, there is one particular group that comes for counseling, not just to me, to the other pastors, even to trained professionals that I have never been able to help. And, and it shows up frequently uh, in people coming for counseling. And, and this group of people is comprised of church members, most of the time professing believers, who uh, have... Um, enormous problems in their lives that ultimately they have created by their own foolish 
and sometimes even evil behavior, but they adamantly insist that it's of no fault of their own. None of the things that have happened to them are their fault. It is always someone else's fault. It is always a spouse's fault. It is always a boss's fault. It is always a child's fault. It is always a parent's fault. It's always a neighbor's fault. And it happens really frequently with spouses. They'll, one of the spouses will set up an appointment for the couple to come in for marital counseling. And, and when we come in, inevitably, the one that set the appointment up will then sit down and give me a laundry list of everything that is wrong with their spouse. And a lot of times the spouse just sits there, kind of like, I mean, I don't know what to say. And sometimes what you'll find out ultimately is that that spouse that set this appointment up, that brought their spouse in in order for them to be fixed, will just basically lay out everything that's wrong with their spouse, kind of fold their hands and put them in their lap and then be like, okay, fix them. There's nothing wrong with me. I've not made any mistakes. I'm not at fault at all in any of this. It's completely and totally on them. Well, too many people in those situations and in many other like them have no issues at all with their own faults, with their own sins. On a scale of 1 to 10, they probably give themselves a 12 as to how good they are in everyday life. And in many instances, they are absolutely sure that they've done nothing wrong, primarily for one simple reason as they've evaluated their own actions, as they've looked at their lives, they have determined that the things that they have done are acceptable by whose standards, you might ask? Well, that's a great question. But inevitably, they've determined by their own standards that their actions are permissible and therefore cannot be held against them because, after all, they let their conscience be their God. Isn't that why God gave us a conscience in the first place? That it would guide us and direct us and help us to know the difference between right and between wrong and that as long as we listen to it, we would not be at fault. And if we don't feel like we're at fault, then everything must be okay. Well, where does this idea come from? Because certainly not from Scripture. But clearly, some people get that idea from Bible verses that they read as, the, as if that were something that the Bible teaches. Well, here's a possible scripture verse that people use. Romans chapter 2, verse 15. We walked through the book of Romans not too long ago, and in verse 15 it says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, we could certainly go back and look at the larger context of that, but we walked through that passage of Scripture not too terribly long ago. On the surface, it certainly looks like our conscience is intended to work in cooperation with God to inform us as to what to do and maybe sometimes even what not to do. And maybe some of these know-it-all people that we were describing earlier on, uh, maybe they're just getting everything wrong with their evaluation of the things in their life. And it's really easy for those of us that hear of people like that, and we begin to assume, I can't believe those kind of people exist, but we let ourselves off the hook really easily. We assume they think they're always right, and therefore we're kind of judgmental towards them, but I think we should probably take a moment, kind of take a step back, do some self-reflection and see how many times do we let our conscience be our guide? 
How many times are we faced with a decision and we kind of do our own just internal evaluation of whether or not it's right or wrong? What other steps should we be taking to determine not whether or not it's okay for us, but whether or not it's actually okay with God? Is it part of His will for our life? Many of us have been led to believe that our conscience is a trustworthy, moral guide. But unfortunately, that is a fundamental misunderstanding of the role and even the capabilities of our own conscience. It is important. It is a vital part of our spiritual journey, but not in the way we think it is many times. Why? Well, let's start in the beginning and read verses 1 through 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, kind of see where we're going to start with this. Beginning in verse 1, it says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. Now, why do we begin there? Well, first of all, here's what we need to be reminded of. You have been elected by God. God has saved you. You didn't save yourself. If you are saved today, if you are a believer, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are a disciple of Christ, if you're in the family of God, however you want to frame that, however you want to title that, that was the work of God, not your work. You weren't good enough to get there. God did it for you. We start here because it's a reminder that we don't owe our salvation to ourselves. That'll be very important when we begin looking at our conscience here in just a moment. So there's a couple things that means. First of all, it means we don't belong to ourselves, but it also means we shouldn't live for ourselves. Paul is actually using here in verse 1 two different words that are typically translated as slaves in the English language. The two words are linked together. It actually links together two different assignments. One of them would have been one of the highest assignments in a Roman household, but another one would have been one of the lowest assignments in the Roman kingdom or empire. And, and he's linking them together in this one verse as though they're connected and we basically function in that same capacity with God as our master as we are his slaves or his servants or his stewards. And so that's very important for us to look at. So let's look at those two words. First of all, the first word that typically can be translated slaves here is actually translated servant. You are a servant for Christ's mission. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ. And so it's very important for us to be reminded of the fact that as servants of Christ, we have a very particular role that we are to function in. Now the word specifically here, translated slaves or servant, is literally an under rower. On Roman ships, there would be below the deck, there would be these huge oars that the slaves would hold on to and they would actually row. They were called galley slaves and they would row and, and they would provide the propulsion for the ship, for the Roman ship to actually be moving forward. These slaves on the bottom deck would be rowing and providing that propulsion. Well, nobody even knew they were down there. Nobody even pays attention to who's providing the propulsion for the ship. They're just glad the ship is moving. The only time they even think about those slaves is when everything stops moving. And, and God, through the Apostle Paul here, is saying that as servants of Christ, we are servants to his mission, that the mission of Christ continues because of our service to him. But that's not the only term that he actually uses here. Another term that he uses here is this idea of steward. And we're reminded that you're not only a servant for Christ's mission, but you are also a steward of Christ's message. 
There in, in uh, verse number uh, one, it says, this house should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. That second term there, steward, is a different designation within a Roman household. The first one, the slave, the under rower, were the galley slaves that were propelling the ship. But this particular one is a house manager, at least a manager on some, uh, uh, some aspect of a slave owner, sometimes the entire house, sometimes for the entire estate. Slaves that were entrusted to manage the, the uh, value and the worth and the possessions of the slave owner. Either way, whether you are rowing the ship or whether you are being a steward of the possessions of the master, you are not your own. We're slaves to a master. And it's important for us to be reminded of that responsibility. When I was in seminary, I, I knew some seminary students who one of the jobs that they took on while they were there was to house it for people in order to make some extra money. Listen, when you're in seminary, you do whatever you can to make money. I worked in a call center and called people in Connecticut uh, for the Department of Transportation there and talked to people about stuff I had never seen, didn't know anything about, and trying to sell them uh, passes to be able to get onto the Department of Transportation's uh, kind of public transport. We did whatever we could just to make ends meet when we were in seminary. Seminary students are uh, not the most wealthy, but sometimes when you're in this role where you're house-sitting for someone else, you get to pretend like you're wealthy. There's some gorgeous homes in Wake Forest, North Carolina. There's some gorgeous homes in the Raleigh-Durham area. And, and I remember talking to some of my friends who were house-sitting for them, and, and they just, they really enjoyed just kind of the playing around and imagining what it would be like to live in some of these immaculate homes. Uh, you'd pull into the driveway as if you belonged there. You'd walk up the stairs like you owned the place. It would provide a way for the seminarians to kind of, you know, imagine and live outside of their own means as they were living in those accommodations that they were watching over, taking care of. And you can understand why some of those wealthy homeowners would want seminary students to watch over their house because they felt like they could be more trustworthy than others. Now, whether or not that was true or not, I hope so, uh, but you never know. I asked one of my friends if they enjoyed all of the nice, expensive things that were in the house that were there for them. They were like, yeah, it's crazy. It's really crazy to be able to uh, just see those kind of things, let alone to be able to use them, because I never even thought I'd be around some stuff. And one particular one had this just immaculate home theater room with reclining massage chairs that you could watch on the, the entire wall was a screen and it had a high definition projector it was just it was awesome and i asked him i was like hey how was it watching movies on that home theater system that was there and he said oh no my wife won't let me touch any of that stuff she knows the owners are coming back and she wants everything to be exactly like it was when they left and everything to be in its proper place because she's pretty sure that sometimes I get too comfortable. Now let me ask you a question. Why would God want your conscience to be your guide, to guide you when it comes to his stuff? Don't you think he wants you to be guided by his spirit, by his word? Because here's the problem. Too many times when we're being stewards of the mysteries of God, when we're being stewards of the possessions that God has given to us, we become too comfortable as though it were ours. You've got to be reminded, first of all, you don't belong to yourself. You were elected by 
God. But let's keep going. Secondly, you will also be evaluated by God. Verses 3 and 4, but with me it is a very small thing that I should judge myself, that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. It's interesting when you read this passage of Scripture here, especially verses 3 through 4, there's a lot of temptation out there to want to fit in with the world, to be like the world, to look like the world. Many times because we're seeking the world's approval. Now, how does that affect your conscience? We'll get there in just a second. But here's the thing Paul's trying to get across. Don't trust the world's approval. Because just because they say you're doing right, clearly that doesn't mean you're doing right. I mean, listen, we we can see what's going on in the world right now, and we can tell they don't really have a moral compass. Okay, so they're not really a good example of what right and wrong is. He, He says it's a small thing. The word he uses for small in the Greek is micros. It's where we get our term microscope from. It is very small. It is insignificant to him whether or not the world thinks that he's doing what's right or what's wrong. That doesn't matter to him. He's not seeking the world's approval. We usually want to fit in, but you know that unfortunately also affects the way we evaluate ourselves. He says, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted by that. Here's another way to say that. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm innocent. Just because I feel like everything's okay doesn't mean that everything's okay. Paul even said, listen, I'm, I'm praying that God will forgive me for those hidden sins, the things I didn't even know that I did. Hey, maybe I think I'm great, but that doesn't make me innocent. One of our problems is that we imagine our conscience is like a spiritual thermometer. We assume that if we place our conscience within a particular set of circumstances, that it will tell us the moral temperature of that particular situation. We assume that it'll tell us, hey, no, this is too hot. Mm, This is too cold. No, this is just right, like it's Goldilocks. But that's not how our conscience works. It's not a spiritual thermometer. It's a spiritual thermostat. And the difference is important. Thermostats don't define hot and cold. They reflect our definition of hot and cold. We set them to respond however we want them to respond. But they don't tell the difference between hot and cold they just go by whatever standards you set for them members of my family have very different definitions of comfortable when it comes to temperature when i think it's stuffy my daughter emma is freezing when i'm at my parents house i can't breathe and i usually leave their house drenched in my own sweat but they like it a nice comfortable 108 degrees and so we just don't we don't really coexist very well when it comes to that if we ever spend the night together whether my house or their house or on the road on vacation together we're constantly playing thermostat tug of war because they like it warmer and i like it cooler hey that's the beauty of the dual climate controls in the new cars today i can set my side of the car on a nice comfortable 65 degrees and beth my wife can set hers on a nice balmy 74 degrees or 80 degrees or 85 degrees or 90 degrees or it doesn't make any difference because on her side of the car everyone's happy but now what if i were to take my car back to the dealership and i were to say to the mechanic listen something is wrong with the thermostat on my wife's side of the car it's always too hot he would just kind of look at me strange and confused and he would explain to me 
ther- that's how the thermostat works. She sets the temperature on her side of the car to be whatever she wants the temperature on her side of the car to be. That don't have anything to do with you. You can set your temperature whatever you want to. Hers is not affected by it. Yours is not affected by it. They don't define hot and cold. We define it and they respond to our definitions. And that's how our conscience works. It's a spiritual thermostat. We set it to the standards that we choose. Whether those standards are worldly, whether those standards are selfish, whether those standards are biblical and godly and righteous, we determine when it kicks in and when it stays idle. It doesn't tell us that we're violating God's standards unless we set it like that. It only tells us when we're violating the standards that we set it to. Those things that we feel like are appropriate or permissible and however we've justified it in our life, you can very easily manipulate your conscience. But remember, we don't belong to ourselves anymore. So we are responsible as stewards of what God has given to us to set the standard of our conscience to God's standards. In other words, don't forget the Lord's approval. That's what matters most. The last part of verse 4 says, it is the Lord who judges me. That's the only one that matters. Not the world, not even you. You you may think you have a clear conscience. You may think everything's okay. Okay. But ultimately, you're going to stand before God, and he knows what's true. Don't forget the Lord's approval. So set your thermostat according to God's word, God's spirit, God's plan for your life. Verse 5 says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Boy, that's a much different perspective on how you ought to live based on whether or not you think you're okay or whether or not God thinks you're okay. And that's really what you ought to be living towards. Living towards righteousness in Him because you've studied His Word, you've prayed to Him, you've put your faith and trust in Him. Does this seem impossible? Yeah, of course it is, by your own ability and standards. How is it possible for me to know God's will for my life? I mean, I can tell what I want to do, but how can I possibly know what God wants to do with my life? Well, if He elected you, and he's the only one that can rightly judge you, then you can also be sure that finally you've been empowered by God. We have the ability to live the life that he saved us to and called us to live because he's empowered us to live that life too. Look at verses 6 and 7. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what's written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? He's not saying we shouldn't evaluate our actions. As a matter of fact, he's reminding us you should examine all your actions. But you ought to examine your actions based on the standards of righteousness that God has provided for you. Not what you've deemed appropriate or permissible in your own life. There are plenty of things that I'm okay with that I'm, I'm convinced after reading God's Word, after praying, after listening to the Spirit, God doesn't want me doing that. But I really want to, so I will justify the way to be able to do it. I mean, after all, we looked at last week. Doesn't God want you to be happy? Yes, but God wants you to be happy in Him. That was the conclusion of the passage of Scripture we looked at. Delight in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. Find your hope and your peace and your assurance and your fulfillment and your contentment in Him, and He will 
bless you with joy and happiness and peace that surpasses all understanding. Here's the deal. The Corinthian church was a mess for many reasons. But one reason was there was a divide around leadership preferences. One group favored Paul. Another group favored Apollos, both of them prominent leaders in the church in Corinth. They had planted many of the churches there. They had, they had uh, encouraged and built up the believers there. And some followed Paulus and some followed, uh, some followed Paul and some followed Apollos. So rather than fight it, Paul used it. And here's what he basically said there in the first part of verse 6. No matter who your preferred leader is, you need to be reminded that even your leaders are nothing without God. I've applied all these things that he previously talked about. We were elected by God. We, we are being evaluated by God. We've been empowered by God. I've applied all these things to myself and also to Apollos for your benefit that you may learn by us not to grow, not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. Don't be arrogant. This is not about you. This is about God. God's the one who gifts us, so you need to examine your actions. Why are you seeking leadership positions? Why are you going down this path? Why are you striving after these things? Why do you think it's okay to live this way, to do these things, to say these words, to act in a particular way towards people? Why do you believe that's okay? Many times we believe it's okay because we've let our conscience be our guide. But you set the parameters for the thermostat of your conscience. If you were to evaluate those standards, do you think that they would pass the judgment of a righteous God? We, we need to be willing to take a step back and say, hey, what a great example Paul and Apollos what a great example Jesus gives us. What a wonderful word God gives us to remind us we're not our own. We belong to him and he knows what's best for us. So seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and let him add all those other things. Trust in him with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. He'll make your paths straight. You want to know his will? Draw close to him. Read his word. Spend time in prayer. Go to life group. Come to worship services. Volunteer your time. Why? Because the closer you draw to God, the more you do what he created you to do, the more he blesses you and opens up those doors of opportunity and shows you and reveals to you what his will is for your life. You don't have to be dependent upon your own fleshly human conscience. God can set the parameters of your conscience and use it for his glory if you will allow him to set those standards because we need to examine our actions and also examine our motives. Verse 7 says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Just a couple quick, th quick thoughts here. If you are led by your conscience... Then you're not going to be different than anybody else. You're going to look just like the world because that's what the world does. If you're different, it's not because your conscience was different. It's because God is different and doing a different work in and through you. If you've achieved anything worthy of recognition, it's not your conscience that's to blame. That's why he says there, uh, what do you have that you did not receive? You didn't do that. That's not a work that's within you. That is God working in you. That was a gift from God. He is the one that brings power. Why do you boast as if you did not receive that wonderful gift and power from God? Have you ever seen those truck commercials where they show the towing ability of a truck? Those things are 
really powerful. They've got a lot of torque. They've got a lot of horsepower. And they're, they're pulling massive loads behind them. They always show those trucks pulling huge loads on a trailer, whether it's a gigantic boat or a, a trailer filled with really heavy equipment or cargo. And sometimes, uh, you know, the size of the thing they're carrying is so much larger than the truck that's actually pulling it. Do you know, just think about it for a second, the thing that's being pulled is doing nothing but going for a ride. You never see a trailer hitched onto a truck struggling to climb a hill. You also never see that trailer moving up the hill without the truck. It's always attached to something pulling it up that hill. The power for the tow is not located in the cargo. The power for the tow is located under the hood of the truck that's pulling the cargo. All the trailer has to do is move up the hill. All the trailer has to do is just be attached to the truck with the power source. Here's our problem many times. We are cargo that is valuable, that God wants to use for His glory and for His kingdom. But we're not attaching ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit and His Word and God's will in our life. And we are letting our conscience be our guide. And therefore we just sit there and do nothing. Because if left to ourselves, then we will not go in the direction that God would have us to go. If left to ourselves, we would not do the things that God has called us to do. Matter of fact, the power for your Christian life is not in you. As a matter of fact, German, uh, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But here's the good news, and this has been the point of this whole section here in this 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The power for your Christian life is Christ in you. He is the power that puts your cargo to work. 1 John 4, 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Stop trying to be like the world. They don't get it. Trust in him with all your heart. Lean into him. Allow God to have complete, total control of your life. Your conscience is beneficial. But your conscience is only beneficial if you actually will take the responsibility to be a steward of what God has blessed you with. To spend time in His Word, to spend time in prayer, to spend time in accountability groups with other believers, to spend time worshiping with other believers, to spend time serving with other believers. And here's what you'll find. God will set the moral standard for your conscience. And then He can guide you through that thermostat that he sets. And he knows exactly where you need to be, exactly where you need to go, exactly what you need to say, how you need to say it. You'll never come to that conclusion on your own. It's not in you, but it is Christ in you. So here's my question for all of you today as we think through this together. Is Christ in you? You'll never be what God wants you to be without him. 
No one comes to the Father except through Him. If you've never put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then today can be the day of salvation. Surrender to Him. Whether you use our decision card and you click on that decision card and you say, today I have decided to follow Jesus. Or whether or not you send us an email or maybe right now you pray that prayer and you say, Father, I know I have sinned and I know I have made mistakes and I am surrendering to You. I confess those sins to you. I ask you to forgive me. And I pray that you will come into my life and be my Lord and my Savior, my Master. Help me to be a good steward of this life that you've called me to. If you pray that prayer, then I pray that you will let us know that you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and give us a chance to come alongside you, to pray for you, and to help you know how to study God's Word and how to live for Him. Don't leave wondering what it would be like to surrender to Christ. But give your life to Him today. Let's pray together as we close. Father, thank You for the opportunity to be able to just open Your Word and be reminded that there are many times where we've been influenced by the things of this world into believing that the stuff that we do is okay when You clearly are telling us, that's not exactly the way I want You to live. And You give us those instructions as to how to draw near to You, as to how to trust in You, as to how to lean on You. You tell all of us that are suffering, that are going through difficulty to cast all of our cares upon you and find rest. God, help us to stop seeking for answers in the world and to start seeking for answers in your word. To stop longing for the approval of the world and to start running to you for approval, for guidance, for direction. God, I pray for every person watching this today that your Holy Spirit speak to their heart. You would draw them to yourself and you would use them for your glory. Thank you for what you have done, for what you're doing, for what you will do. You are a great God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.